Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, today I know you wanted to talk about something that you saw at a panel at the World Science Festival 2017. And this topic was something that I hadn't really thought all that much about. Maybe it had come up a little bit before. But it's... uh GMOs and not GMO wheat or GMO corn or GMO mosquitoes, but GMO astronauts. That's right. This, uh, so, so the, the, the panel that I ended up attending, this was a, one of the, their salons at World Science Festival, Evolution Beyond Earth. It was, uh, it was one of the highlights for me because it basically revolved around a discussion of genetically modifying humans for space exploration. And this is a great topic because it touches on some stuff that we've covered before. Uh, the idea of augmenting humans for space mm-hmm. uh, is, is an idea that goes back decades, and we'll get into that. And it also touches upon just genetically modifying organisms in general and uh, the CRISPR technology, something that we've been we've wanted to talk about on the show for years. And I feel that like this gives us a proper science fiction flavored excuse to discuss it within uh, you know a particular set of uh, parameters. Okay, so today we are going to be doing our best to try to give a simple straightforward explanation of what the CRISPR gene editing process is and what it does, but also to uh explore a little bit of what they talk about in this panel about genetically modifying astronauts and ask should we do it? Should we make our spacemen and space women of tomorrow creatures of the gene scalpel? <laughs> well, if you phrase it like that, um, I mean, really, it, it seems like a reasonable proposition, doesn't it? I mean, when you consider one, consider the options, okay, you could potentially terraform another world. Uh, you could you could strain to bring a particular human environment into space. You know, basically, can a canned version of Earth throw it into space and let people live in that. Or perhaps you can just change what people are. You can make, you can either adapt people to existing environments beyond Earth or tweak them in such a way that you're not having to bend over backwards to create an environment for them uh, beyond Earth. Yeah. And this is a, this is an idea that has resonated in, in science fiction for some time. Uh, a few different examples come to my mind. I, I don't know if, uh, if any of these... Uh, we're knocking around your head as well, or if you have uh, your own examples to, to discuss. No, let's hit yours, man. All right. Well, um, the first is a novel by uh, Clifford D. Simic, who is a kind of a legend in uh, science fiction circles. He was very prolific. He is probably best known for a collection of short stories he, he uh, wrote titled City. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the tales, I think, involves um, speaking dogs, like a, a race of intelligent talking dogs. And he wrote a, Te- wait, telepathic dogs or just like saying words out loud with their dog mouths? I, I think they're they're speaking, but uh, I'm not <laughs> certain because it's not one that I've read. Uh, one book of his that I have read, though, is 1967's The Werewolf Principle. Uh-huh. And th- this is this is a great book in, in a number of ways, because essentially I, I don't know the origin of it, but it it feels like someone said, hey, Clifford, can you write a space werewolf book for us? I think that's something people would like to read, and who wouldn't? <laughs> uh, but he does a, a fantastic spin on it that is just so thoroughly, um, uh, so thoroughly late sixties, uh, early seventies, uh, you know, science fiction. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So it's a, a wonderfully weird novel in which a human space traveler is augmented to rapidly adapt to alien worlds. He's sort of an android designed to scan and mimic alien species for research purposes. He's one of only two constructed, and he's sent out to alien worlds uh, 200 years ago. He visits a number of these planets, and then he returns to Earth and begins to experience transformations into these uh, into sort of certain monstrous forms. He's having an identity crisis, and in the background to all this, the the the, the Earth setting that all this is taking place on. Invo- includes flying houses. Nice. Because humans have these, you know, these space age houses. Why stay in one spot when you can have your house move from spot to spot? Uh-huh. And also the woods are teeming with brownies. <laughs> or maybe not team, teeming is not the right word, but we've reached the point as a human species to realize, oh yeah, most of the mythical creatures that we talked, we spoke about and sang songs about, 
they weren't real, except for brownies. Brownies were real. So are brownies like fairies? Yeah, they're just like a race of fairies and they live in the, the okay. deep woods. And I don't I don't recall to what extent they actually play a part in the plot of the werewolf principle. But just that they're there gives the the world its own unique spin. You know, I'm glad to hear that there's a space werewolf novel because I, that's something that there could stand to be plenty of. I'm waiting for the space mummy novel. When does that happen? Ooh, well, there was that film. I forget the title of it or the titles, uh, but it was uh, it was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. They had an ancient astronauts mummy. Oh, it's like was it? The Frankenstein and the Aztec mummy? No, but maybe that was also Space Mummy. But this one was like Visitor from Another World or something to that effect. No, I don't know what that is. Uh, well, anyway, I will agree that it is an underutilized subgenre, the Space Mummy. That's what we should be going back to. Yeah, so if you're in the middle of writing a space vampire novel, give it up. Just put it on hold. Give us Space Mummies first. Yeah, or and then the sequel can be Space Mummies versus Space Werewolves. Now, another sci-fi property that comes to mind is a 2009 film that I know some people did not enjoy, but I actually really enjoyed this one, uh, two th- 2009's Pandorum. I liked some things about it. Yeah, I, I, I embraced it mixed all. review. <laughs> uh, I, I embraced all of it. This is the one that had uh, Dennis Quaid in it. It did. It's, yeah. I will say it's not one of Dennis Quaid's finer performances. It's no enemy mine. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the plot, the look of the film, was, I thought was great. And the plot was kind of cool. They, so they're a colonist aboard an interstellar arc named the Elysium. Mm-hmm. And uh, the colonists are augmented to rapidly adapt to the environment of their destination exoplanet, which is a, a world uh, called T- uh, Tannis. Mm-hmm. But of course, something goes horribly wrong and a portion of the crew wakes up early. They go a little crazy and their descendants rapidly adapt to the environment of the spaceship. Right. And they become they essentially become a, a race of cannibal mutant troglophana. It's kind of like uh, the descent in a spaceship instead of a cave. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. It, and it also uh, re- reminds me a bit of a movie that came out along the same time. Uh, known as uh, Eden Log. Did you happen to see this? No, I don't think so. Eden Log is is hauntingly familiar. It's like a a more artistic French reflection of the same film. Oh, okay. So um, I would say if if anyone out there enjoyed Pandorum, uh, go see Eden Log. Or if you enjoyed parts of Pandorum, uh, go watch Eden Log. You probably won't understand what's happening, but when has that ever gotten in the in the way of a good good time at a science fiction movie? <laughs> Uh, I should also point out that in Dan Simon's Hyperion novels, you have the the ousters, humans who have adapted to life in space, uh, granted suited and within ships, but still uh, they've been able to adapt due to extensive genetic Mm self-manipulation. And then the Expanse series, uh, based on the books by James S.A. Corey, uh, you see belters who who have adapted uh, to... um, to life on ships on the uh, sort of the the outer uh, limits of human habitation in the solar system. Yeah, this is probably the example I would have mentioned if mm-hmm. I was uh, going to bring up genetic adaptation to space conditions, because obviously living in lower gravity environments, this would be problematic for humans who have been tailored by billions of years of evolution to survive on a Earth gravity world. If you're out in a small gravity world, you, you just probably need a different body, right? And so the these differently adapted creatures, uh, there's this one scene I remember in the expanse of gravity torture, belters mm-hmm. being brought back to Earth and tortured with Earth gravity. Yeah, yeah, just the 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 the, the act of of living on a, on a higher gravity world is torment to them, and that kind of underlines the reverse challenges of taking you're, you're taking a creature. And expecting it to live in an environment that is torture to them, that they uh, that, that they just simply have not evolved to cope with. Mm-hmm. So the the panel that I that I attended, it was moderated by neuroscientist uh, Stuart Firestein, and the panelists were geneticist Chris Mason, geneticist Ting Wu, who as uh, a sort of trivia um, on Ting Wu, um, she is the wife of noted geneticist George M. Church, mm-hmm. and also astrobiologist Caleb Scharf. So we we don't even have to consider the challenges of an alien planet to consider the uh, the, the benefits or the potential benefits of, of altering humans for space travel. In fact, you might say space travel itself is 
the harshest possible environment, maybe even more so than another planet, I guess, depending on what the planet is like, because on another planet, you'd at least expect to have some gravity. Right. Or and you can only assume there will be like some level of robust radiation shielding, either in the form of a of a naturally occurring magnetosphere or like hopefully a substantial underground uh, base or whatever your right. your off-world colony is going to consist of. And an atmosphere. And an atmosphere, which is also going to um, in, in, entail a certain amount of radiation uh, shielding. Right. But your 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 tin can, your, your generation ship sailing across the space, sailing across interstellar space even, uh, that's going to be a different proposition. Unless you're going to a comet or small asteroid, the ship is probably a harsher environment. Yeah. And and uh, and probably a long journey. Oh, an important uh, point that, uh, that that the moderator Stuart Feinstein made in this is that uh, humans have proven incredibly adaptable here on Earth, and I think this leads into this idea that we should be able to survive anywhere. Right? Mm-hmm. We we live all over the world. We can we can sustain ourselves in pretty harsh conditions, and yet, um, even though we've become a global species, even though we're considering this leap. Uh, into becoming an interplanetary species, species we entertain, uh, quote, a migration to a place that has never impacted our evolution in any way. That's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the, it's, there's just been zero input whatsoever of, for example, zero, uh, you know, uh, microgravity conditions on, mm-hmm. on the evolution of any life form on Earth. No precedent whatsoever. Yeah. So... On the other hand, so on one hand, you can say that place is not for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Space is horrible. Why would you want to go there? But there are plenty that argue that, hey, we need to figure it out, that uh, that life beyond Earth is vital to the long term survival of the human race. That if we're going to continue to exist long term, we have to exist places other than this world. Right. We can debate what the number is, but. The natural ecology of Earth or even the augmented ecology of Earth does have some kind of natural carrying capacity. Mm -hmm. There's some maximum number of humans that it can sustain in terms of giving them clean air to breathe, fresh water, uh, food, space to live, all those kinds of things. At some point, we we will run out of that if we keep multiplying. And then, of course, there are there there are hard stops for just the, the habitability of Earth in the, the long-term future as well. Yeah, at some point, the sun will sort of increase in size. That's not so great for the surface dwellers of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and then there's a, there's another argument to be made here, and this is uh, one that uh, that uh, the astrobiologist uh, Caleb Scharf made in the talk. He said, he said the human exploration remains the best option for exploration, that robots can only get us so far, and that there's... And th- in this, you kind of get into a more... I guess, philosophical argument for exploration when you're saying that, yeah, you can send robots out, you can send probes out. Uh, we can we can move a joystick and then move a robotic arm on another world with some you know degree of lag time. But are we losing something? Is there something is, is there something lost in not having actual human exploration? Sure, you could make that argument. I mean, I think. I'm of the opinion that robotic exploration can get us a lot of what we need. We can get some good research results. We can reduce the risk of human death and injury and reduce the risk of cross-contamination of environments mm-hmm. and and all that kind of stuff. You can do a lot with robots, but there are some things that humans are sort of unique providers of. One is on-site ingenuity. Mm-hmm. Robots at this point do not have the kind of intelligence and ingenuity and uh, creativity that a human astronaut would have if you were trying to trying to not just, say, do a few specific tests on the surface of Mars, but to create a robust research environment on a faraway planet. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, but then also on top of that, humans have inspiration potential for the rest of humanity in a way that robots don't. Not to say it's not inspiring to see the Curiosity rover, for example, moving around on the surface of Mars, but you can't deny there will be a very different kind of effect when there are human feet on the soil of Mars. Oh, no doubt. And so we end up then asking the question, well, how is this going to happen? How are we going to pull it off? And indeed, what changes might we want or need to make to the human body to enable those feet 
uh, those footsteps to uh, actually take place on Mars? Well, I know one answer is we got to got to replace these hands with crab claws. <laughs> when well, are we finally going to get our claws, Robert? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe there's an argument. Baby steps, though, right? Because uh-huh. if, if our knowledge of GMOs have taught, has taught us anything thus far, is that people are, are going to be resistant to the idea of like rapid change, mm-hmm. right? They're not going to go for crab claws right off the bat, but maybe more subtle changes. At any rate, geneticist Chris Mason uh, says that we need to consider a 500-year lab plan, Uh, so a multi-stage plan to advance our understanding of the human genome, figure out exactly what we can tweak, where we need to tweak it to adapt humans to better, uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, thrive on a trip to Mars and then the subsequent uh, uh, stay on Mars. subsequent colonization of Mars. So 500 years, that's a pretty slow ascent. And yeah. I, I can see some benefits to that. Number one, that gives the technology plenty of time to get there. But number two, it's what you were talking about with baby steps in acclimatizing people. Yeah. Uh, it would give people in general a chance to say, okay, this is fine. You know, because each generation, the changes would be small. Yeah. So hopefully by the time crab class came along, everyone would be, would be cool with it. And it's, but it's also, it's easy to say, well, this, that, this sucks as an option because 500 years, we're not going to be around to, to see the fruits of that labor. But it also really plays to humanity's strengths. Because mm-hmm. no matter, granted, we, we often suffer for our ability to not, um, not, calculate things long term. Right. But yet at the at the same time, we do have a unique ability to plan beyond our own lifespan. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a it's a special magic that uh, that other organisms do not have, uh, even if it's uh, one that we are uh, we are not completely competent with ourselves yet. Even if we're not great at it, we can at least do it. Yeah. And as they say in the in the space program, doing a bad job is better than not doing it at all. <laughs> Uh, they don't say that, do they? I, 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 I'm not sure. That, that might have been included on the uh, the Voyager plates. I'm not, not, not positive. All right. So before we consider the present solutions, before we consider genetically modifying humans for space, I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to look back and see what uh, two individuals, Nathan Klein and Manfred Klein's, uh, said in their uh, their cyborg paper back in 1960. Sure, because, hey, if you want to modify human beings to explore space, you don't have to go straight to their genes. You could instead uh, basically give them a few mods right now. Yeah, and that's that's basically what, what these authors were arguing. Back in 1960, they presented a grocery list of ways that technology and medical science could retrofit the human body uh, for the, the star hopping lifestyle. And this is where the concept of the cyborg came from was this paper, uh, in 1960 by the Klein, by, yeah. by the Kleins, by Klein and Kleins. Yes. One with a C, one with a, a K, one, one with an S on the end, one without. It's a, it, it always trips me up uh-huh. as well. But yeah, they made this argument early on to say, Hey, you want to put people in space, you need to be willing to change people. And we were not willing to change people or we could look at it two different ways either we were not willing to do it or we did not really have the 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 scientific advances to make those changes at least not the more radical changes that are proposed in this paper this is a very if you if you go read this paper the tone of it is incredibly gung-ho you know oh, what yeah. i mean it's just so like well let's get her done come on Changing humans for space. Yeah yeah it is very gung-ho uh i'm, I'm gonna read a quick uh, quote from it here to give you a taste Solving the many technical problems involved in man's spaceflight by adapting man to his environment rather than vice versa will not only make a significant step forward in man's scientific progress, but may well provide a new and larger dimension for man's spirit as well. (laughs) So they're like, let's not just change ourselves for space. Let's change ourselves for the principle of it. Yeah, it's kind of it kind of gets back to the idea that if you change the body, you change the soul. And they're saying, hey, we're going to embiggen the body. We're going to embiggen that human soul. Uh, You're going to. It's a perfectly cromulent idea. (laughs) So their recommendations were all very much in the vein of retrofits. Uh, So we're going to get more into the idea of of sort of, um, you know, front end changes via genetic modification. But they were all about taking the creature that has evolved for this world and adapting it to survive in the other or, you know, in the space between worlds. Uh, 
in the, that they made a point of not altering the heredity of the human being. Interesting. So here's another quote. In the past, evolution brought about the altering of bodily functions to suit different environments. Starting as of now, it will be possible to achieve this to some degree without alteration of heredity by suitable biochemical, physiological, and electronic modification uh, modifications of man's existing modus vivendi. <laughs> okay, so the way of getting along in life, previously we would make an adaptation to our genes in a mm-hmm. way that could be transferred from adult to child. So it's a, it's an indirect modification. It's not this Lamarckian idea of like, well, I had to reach up to a tree so my arms got longer and my kids had longer arms. Mm-hmm. It's no, you're born with longer arms by accident. You can reach the tree better and thus your kids get that as well. Right. That's, you know, the, the accepted version of heredity. Now, of course, epigenetics and lots of weird things have sort of modified that slightly over the years. Right. But still, we basically are operating on a germline heredity model for for where our body traits come from. And they're saying, no, we don't have to do that anymore. We can change people who are alive right now. They don't have to get these changes from their their ancestors. Right. And the changes are, are rather fascinating, the ones that they propose. So they make suggestions, including uh, the use of uh, hypothermic hibernation for extended space travel. Freeze me. Yes. Yeah. Lowering body temperature and administering uh, various drugs through an automatic osmotic pump, of course, to alter enzyme levels, low gravity tolerance, uh, etc. There's also the, the, the idea that you could use a solar or nuclear-powered inverse fuel cell in place of a lung. Isn't that just beautiful? A <laughs> nuclear-powered fuel cell for respiration. Yeah. And then uh, this is probably my favorite passage uh, from the paper. Fluid intake and output. Fluid balance in the astronaut could be largely maintained via a shunt from the ureters to the venous circulation after removal or conversion of noxious substances. <laughs> Sterilization of the gastrointestinal t- tract plus intravenous or direct intragastric feeding could reduce fecal elimination to a minimum, and even this might be reutilized. This is ambition. This mm-hmm. is ambition if I've ever seen it. Yeah, this is a basic like cybernetic replumbing of the human body. Yeah, they're looking at what the human body does. They're saying like, Look, pooping and peeing, so much waste here. We, we, we gotta find a way to reclaim all of this waste from poop and pee. This enthusiasm reminds me of a passage in Mary Roach's excellent book, uh, Packing for Mars, uh-huh. where she talks about the, the clash of culture between the NASA scientists and the astronauts themselves. Right. Especially early on when the, the astronauts themselves tended to be essentially cowboys. They were they were the um, they were the test pilots. They were the they were very you know manly men of the of of the sixties. Well, I think actually the astronauts may have better embodied this uh, this Klein and Klein gung ho attitude of like yeah let's do whatever get her done. Well, to a point because uh, as, as Roach points out, you'd have scientists who would say, all right, uh, to in, to enable this kind of space journey, there needs to be a certain amount of like repurposing fecal matter. We need to we need to figure out how to make the interior of the spaceship out of consumable products, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And and she said that there there would there would come a point where the the, the astronauts, if they caught wind of this idea, they would say, yeah, well, we're we're not doing that. That's just you're, that's too far. So how's that? How's that uh, spaceship ready Salisbury steak meal coming? Though? <laughs> well, it's it's still a work in progress. But well, I guess it does come down to the. Oh, just the the scope of what you're trying to do, right? Just this, just this impossible dream of 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 taking terrestrial uh, organisms and allowing them to to journey and even thrive beyond our world. You've got to you've got to enter into that with a very gung ho, change everything attitude. Otherwise, how are you going to get there? Well, yeah, there there are different ways you could approach this. So if you're talking about modifying astronauts for space travel. One way you could think about it is how do we get them through the mission, right? Mm-hmm. How do we modify astronauts so that they can complete their mission objectives and survive the whole time and come back versus uh, thinking about modifying astronauts to 
be the kind of organism where this is the environment they thrive in, where going to space is natural to them. And it's not just to get them through it without them dying or suffering debilitating illness, but to make them at home in these new environments like space and other planets. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in order to carry all this out, why should we depend on crude aftermarket fixes like replumbing the human body and installing uh, nuclear lungs? Why do that? When we could achieve the ideal or, you know, quote unquote, ideal spacefaring human via modern and near future gene editing technology. And that is not as far fetched as it might sound. And when we come back from this break, are you ready for a break, Robert? I'm ready for a break. All right. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the CRISPR gene editing method. All right, we're back. So, again, gene editing, CRISPR, this is a topic that we've wanted to discuss for some time. I know we've had listeners who've reached out and said, said, hey, do an episode on CRISPR. And I don't know about you, but and I know you've you've covered CRISPR, I think, on other shows before. But I always found it a bit uh, intimidating because there's there's to to look at CRISPR and then draw in sort of the 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 more everyday uh, examples of how it might be utilized in the fighting of diseases and whatnot, and then drawing in a lot of the uh, continued controversy over GMO in general, it, it it becomes a bit intimidating. And I like I like the idea of discussing it here because it it lines up nicely with a specific science fiction flavored um, uh, use for its products. Sure. For the purposes of today's conversation, you can think of it as the the tiny micromolecular structure that makes better astronauts. Yes. <laughs> okay, so CRISPR has been in the news for several years now. And if you're one of those people who's heard about it, but you've been afraid to ask what it is, you're not alone. We, we get this question popping up all the time. Uh, a lot of people, I think, have heard of it and they know it's a genetic technique. They know geneticists are going crazy about its potential, both for good and for ill. But they're not quite clear what exactly is it. So I'm going to try to give the easy version to explain what it is um, without getting overly complicated. So CRISPR is the most common shorthand for this new form of genetic technology that's revolutionizing our ability to edit the genomes of living organisms. The ability to edit a genome has already existed. So it's not that we can edit genomes, whereas we could not before. It's existed at least since the 1990s. But the CRISPR toolkit is making the process easier, more efficient, more precise, and cheaper. Now, when I say that it's a tool or a technology, this can be a little bit misleading because CRISPR is not something that was invented in a lab. Rather, it was identified in living microbes and then harnessed and modified for human scientific use. So CRISPR is part of the natural immune system. It's the immune function of single single-celled organisms like bacteria and archaea, and it allows them to protect themselves against viruses. But you still might be asking, wait a minute, but what is it? What's the thing? Uh, so I'll try to explain that as clearly as I can. CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. And in a direct sense, these are just segments of DNA. So you've got the genome of a prokaryotic organism, for example, a bacterium of E. coli, and it's got its DNA. And along that DNA of this E. coli, you'll find places where there are these clusters of DNA that read the same forwards as they read backwards. They're palindromic, just like palindromes in words. Robert, do you have a favorite palindrome? I've got the, I love rats live on no evil star. Oh man, that, that one is great. I don't think I'd ever heard that one before, but that's impossible to follow. I think I saw that on the internet at some point. I assume someone has a book with that title. That would, that's a great book title. Rats live on no evil star. It implies like rats may live on a good star. <laughs> it would, feels like it should have, there should be some wisdom in there, right? Plasma rats. Like, uh, where someone's like, man, I just, I'm really down about the state of the world today. Well, you know what, it, what they say. Rats live on no evil star. <laughs> right on. Yeah, it has that fortune cookie vibe. <laughs> 
But anyway, so there are these segments of DNA that read the same forwards as backwards. And in between them, so that's where the, the term interspaced comes in, the I in CRISPR, in between these palindromic repeats are segments of DNA that exactly match the DNA of viruses that are bacteria-killing viruses like bacteriophages. So in a similar way to how your body makes antibodies so your immune system can target and destroy germs that have already infected you in the past, a bacterium makes copies of viral DNA in its genome so it can recognize that viral DNA in the future and destroy it. Uh, but how does this happen? Well, I mentioned that CRISPR is shorthand. It's sort of a shorthand for a toolkit of genes and proteins associated with CRISPR in the wild. And one of these systems is the CRISPR-Cas9 system. This is one of the main ones that's actually being talked about when people talk about CRISPR. So Cas genes are genes. They're CRISPR-associated genes, which is where Cas comes from. And like all genes, they're also made of DNA and they're part of the genome. Uh, so DNA, of course, creates proteins, and proteins can do work inside a cell. So Cas DNA makes DNA editing proteins. If you think about your DNA has this part that generate proteins that can make edits to your DNA. Uh, for example, these would be enzymes called nucleases that are able to snip DNA at certain points like scissors. So uh, let's try to imagine you are a prokaryotic cell. So you are a cell of the bacterium Streptococcus pyogenes. Robert, can you put yourself in that frame of mind? How hard is it? <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's, it's a more of a challenge than imagining myself as, say, a, a hobbit or a dwarf. But, uh, yeah, I think I can do it. Okay, so you're this Streptococcus bacterium. And your Cas genes in your genome create this big blob of proteins called Cas9 for CRISPR-associated protein 9. And this Cas9 is, is this protein structure that's equipped with nucleases. Remember, those are the enzymes that can snip DNA. And it's also equipped with strands of RNA matching all of the viral DNA that you've stored up in your genome over the generations. So this Cas9 object floats around inside you, in the, inside this cell, and if a virus comes along and squirts some of its DNA into you, the Cas9 system can latch onto that viral DNA with its matching set of CRISPR RNA and then bust up that viral DNA with its nucleases, right? So it's got the profile of the viral DNA it wants to catch, and it's got these proteins, these nucleases, that can destroy that viral DNA. Now, if it comes across viral DNA that's not already stored in your genome, it can also make a copy of that viral DNA, snip a hole in the CRISPR part of your genome, and insert it so that you're protected in the future, so this gets incorporated into future generations of your germline. Now, that's some amazing molecular technology, but the way it comes in to, to the scientific research is, what if we could harness that for our own purposes? And that's what scientists within the past few years have been doing. So the CRISPR-Cas9 technology is a modified version of this biological system. And what it does is it allows scientists to insert whatever DNA they want as the model for the CRISPR RNA in the Cas9 system. So this CRISPR-Cas9 tool can be given a target segment of DNA, and then it can go in with precision and snip that and only that section out of your genome. You know, this can be useful if you want to, for example, knock out a gene that's causing some unwanted effect. Or it can even be used to insert a specific string of DNA code at a targeted location, and that's really interesting. So it can punch a hole in a gene that you want knocked out, or it can go in and make an edit. It can cut open a hole, insert what you want, and move back out. And what this all amounts to is that we can edit our DNA and the DNA of other organisms with much greater precision, much easier than ever before. And obviously, this is a big deal. This technology is going to be incredibly powerful. It's not just a future thing. It's already being used in the lab today as a research tool 
But there is this really strong, robust argument among scientists and bioethicists about how it should be used, right? Most people are okay with the idea of trying to develop uses that would, for example, heal a cancer-causing mutation in an adult human or cure some other disease. But other things are a lot more controversial when you consider ideas like editing the germline DNA. And that's the DNA that's not just part of your somatic cells, not just part of your body now, but the DNA that would get passed on from one generation to another. Because if you make edits to that, you're essentially editing all of the children and grandchildren and future descendants that a person would have without the consent of those future descendants. You are modifying the human being. And in doing that, you are, I mean, that, that encompasses all the potential positives and negatives of that that godlike act. Yeah, and, and there are tons of other things to consider. I think it's a very interesting debate about what should be done with this technology, if anything at all. I mean, I, I think it's hard to argue that we shouldn't use it for anything because it's clearly a powerful research tool, not just for editing people as they exist, but just for, for, for example, identifying certain types of genes that do certain things. It's powerful in the lab to find things out about the human genome. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there are tons of questions about what it should be used for. For example, we found this one really interesting article just from, uh, I think published just a few days ago in June of 2017 in the New York Times by Moises Velasquez Manoff called, and it was an argument, quote, in favor of bad genes. Yeah, this is a great read. He, so he points, uh, in the article, he points to, uh, specifically to the case of sickle cell. Yeah. So, the gene itself is, is usually found in people of sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, and India. And having one copy of the gene can prevent the worst symptoms of malaria. Right. And uh, uh, whereas if you have uh, if you have two, then you get into the, the, the that's where the problems arise. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's a it's a gene that if you have two copies of this can cause a terrible disease that leads to a lot of suffering. But if you just have one copy of it, it can be incredibly beneficial in the environment. So it's not it's not just like a defect. It arose for a reason. It provides a survival advantage. Right. It's just when it when you end up having more than one or when it becomes out of balance, it's kind of it's kind of the uh, a reality of life in general. Right. There are plenty of things in our life in our life that in moderation are very helpful. But it's when they become unbalanced, you know, having having one pet dog in your house is cool. Having twenty eight. Uh, is uh, is an unbalanced uh, reality. Yeah, uh, and, and there are lots of cases of genes like this, genes that may appear, that, that do in fact cause negative effects, but also do confer some strong advantage in certain environments. Yeah, for instance, uh, gene variants that cause uh, lung disease cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. It's hypothesized that having just one copy of the gene protects against TB, uh, tuberculosis, uh, also known as the, the White Plague of Europe, uh, Vasquez Manoff points out, uh, and one in tw- 25 people from Northwest Europe or of Northwest European descent have it. So you're probably wondering at this point, why do we need to worry about established diseases? Uh, why do we need to worry about uh, ailments for which we already have uh, uh, you know, more robust uh, means of, of combating them? Well, the problem is that new pathogens uh, for which we don't have cures continue to emerge. And some of these bad genes might be needed one day. So yeah. I was thinking about this in terms of Batman. It's like if you have a situation where Gotham City, you've managed to, to rid yourself of, of all of these uh, criminals. There are no more supervillains running amok. Let's then, kill Batman. Let's get rid of Batman. Why do we have Batman? He's just a distraction, right? Yeah. He's probably a drain on the local economy, uh, etc. Causing a lot of traffic pileups. Yeah. Yeah. And is, in, and is himself, uh, you know, an illegal entity, by right. the way. But uh, then the Joker shows up after right. you've gotten rid of Batman. Yeah, or some new supervillain that we can't even envision yet. And then are we going to have the basic vigilante tools to combat him? And in the case of, of our own genome, are we going to have the basic genomic tools in our body for our body to, to combat this threat? Yeah, and I think this is a very interesting argument that, I mean, part of it is that we just don't, understand everything about our genome Mm -hmm. and genes that do appear to cause some kind of negative effect may also be doing something important for us that we don't realize. That's right. And uh, as Vasquez Manoff points out, environment is also a key here. So some of the gene variants now linked with disease probably don't cause as many problems 
in other environments, depending uh, perhaps on microbes in their home environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he points to, for instance, uh, the biome of a less hygienic past, because uh, you have to think about the fact that, uh, you know, he, it's basically the same scenario we have with space travel. The yeah. idea that humans evolved within a very firm set of parameters. And even within our world, they are, they're, they, they evolved in certain portions of, of our environment. Yeah. Uh, geologically, uh, isolated for long periods of time. And so you have to factor that into their, uh, into their genes, into the expression of those genes and into the, um, uh, the microbiome, uh, that becomes, uh, uh, pretty much standard for them. Yeah, but I, I mean, the broader application to space travel is just that you don't know exactly what some of your genes that appear to be uh, useless or harmful in space might do for you once you're up there. Right. Yeah, there's a, there's actually a wonderful quote from this New York Times article that I think sums up a lot of what we're talking about here. He says, quote, we evolved in environments that are radically different from today's, and some of our genes may work better in those environments. This complicates the idea of trying to perfect the human genome with technology. Given how much the world has changed in just the past 150 years and how much it's likely to change again in the next 150, the question is, what environment will we optimize our genes for? Yeah, now what if, here's another thing. So imagine you've got people on an interstellar arc ship, you mm-hmm. know, it's an intergenerational or multi-generational starship taking you to another planet, and you optimize their genes for survival on that spaceship, mm-hmm. on the journey, so that they can survive and thrive in this spaceship environment. What if the way you've optimized them for the spaceship undercuts their ability to survive once they arrive at the target colonization planet? Yeah, and then you, you run into a situation where you're having to first adapt the crew members, and then there's a different adaptation process that has to kick in for the intended colonist. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I think this is not necessarily an argument that we should never use CRISPR to modify the human genome, but I think it is a good uh, word of caution to say, like, if there are areas where we're not sure we understand everything a gene does and we're not we don't have a very clear picture of the full range of effects of a certain gene and what our life would be like without it. We should be careful about being being too cavalier to change things. Yeah, I mean, just to, we don't understand all of the ramifications necessarily for some of these changes. But that that's kind of baked into the challenge, though, right, mm-hmm. is determining what tweaks we can make that are going to potentially benefit a human space traveler without creating any, uh, you know, additional constraints, yeah. creating additional uh, problems or, or situation that could be problematic later on. Yeah. And of course, all of the, the cautionary questions and ethical dilemmas about CRISPR don't end there. There's a ton of stuff to consider, and uh, that's probably a realm for future episodes where we can talk more about all of the controversies with CRISPR. I know just in the past few months, I think there have been, there's been some back and forth with letters about the ethics and, and, uh, the, the wisdom of using CRISPR in the journal Nature. Yeah. And then on top of that, of course, there are just, uh, you know, the, the, the public's response to it. So as, as Ting Wu pointed out in this panel, there, there are many ethnic groups in particular that have not been well served by genetics and especially by eugenics in the right. past, which was, it's worth uh, pointing out, both immoral science and bad science. So a failure on two fronts. Right. Um, so, you know, to some, to some degree, it's, it's unfair to, to loop them together, but there's undeniably a connection between eugenics and, and, uh, and genetics. Yeah. I mean, you can see people's understandable fear about the idea of making better humans, mm-hmm. like, Okay, so if somebody out there is trying to engineer humans to be better humans, do they have a specific idea about what better humans are? And is that not just like uh, having fewer diseases, but do they also have aesthetic ideas? Yeah, and these are all questions we need to ask as, as we potentially enter into a, uh, an age where where this kind of technology is utilized, or or you know we we consider its use. Uh, but while a lot of groups take issue with gene editing, uh, Wu points out that, that most people, when, when questioned about it, they're cooler with the idea of the technology being used to better protect astronauts in space. 
Yeah. So I think people are generally cooler with the more specific applications. Yes. Healing cancer patients. Okay. Yeah. I'm good with that. Uh, modifying astronauts for space. Yes. Sounds great. Yeah. Tear them up. Do, do what you got to do. Uh, but when it just comes to this general free form, open ended, should we change human beings? That starts to get a little squeaky. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess it's, it's kind of always the case, right? Like if you, if you, if you make the question broad, broad enough, mm-hmm. if you, uh, for instance, were to say, should humans live in the sky? No, <laughs> that sounds pre- preposterous. Humans should not live in the sky. Uh-huh. Humans were, were, you know, evolved or were created, uh, if you want to go that route to, to live here on the ground. We should absolutely not live in the sky. If we went in the sky, we'd fall down and die. But if you were to say, oh, well, should we create, uh, uh, planes that we can, uh, you know, we can fly around in some sort of vehicle that will allow us to go from point A to point B? Yeah. Could we create a, a luxury hotel on an airship? And then if you, if, if you're interested in it and you have enough uh, of money to, to, to flip the bill, you can go up there and spend the night in the air. Yes, that sounds much more reasonable. It's also kind of like if you ask people, would you be OK with scientists experimenting on ways to resuscitate people who have encountered 20 minutes of brain death? They might be like, well, sure. But if you say, should we be working on experiments to revive the dead? Yeah, <laughs> yeah then you're going to get some pushback. All right, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion about the genetically modified astronaut. All right, we're back. So we should we should definitely drive home something that we've we've discussed in length in past episodes, uh, particularly your life as a Mars colonist, and that is that uh, the traveling in space, or, or even and certainly traveling to other worlds. It's going to open you up to a number of um, unhealthy scenarios, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I guess we also touched on this in uh, Five Reasons Never to Take Your Space Helmet Off. Yes. So the big one, the one that, one that we spent a lot of time in that episode with, is, of course, radiation. Exactly. Now, there are, in fact, organisms that are naturally radio-resistant organisms. Mm-hmm. I would tend to think just intuitively, if I'd never read anything about this, that radiation is one of those things kind of like fire or something that mm-hmm. just kind of kills everything. Uh, but there are, in fact, vastly different levels of susceptibility to radiation in the animal kingdom and in organisms generally. And it's not just that there are some extremophile microorganisms that can survive radiation. I mean, we know about tardigrades and things like that. But there, you know, even if you just look at animals, like it looks like turtles have more radio resistance than dogs, probably. So there is some room within large mammals like us to modify our bodies to be more resistant to radiation. All right. So so one potential there is if we can. And again, there are a lot of ifs and and, and, and buts and, and all of this. But if we can figure out ways to alter the human genome to encourage a greater resistance to radiation, uh, greater protection from radiation, that would be an area uh, of opportunity. Yeah. And I mean, there are lots of ways you can think that you might be able to do this. One would be the body al- already has natural DNA repair properties, mm-hmm. right? If there's DNA damage, the genome will try to put itself back together. And of course, if it puts itself back together wrong, this can lead to a mutation that can have bad effects, can maybe cause cancer or something like that. But you could try to genetically modify the human body so as to have stronger DNA repair precision and stronger DNA repair resilience. Or here's another possibility. Robert, remember when we did the episode about the uh, eater of rads, the radiation resistant Uh fungi uh, that that supposedly, if these results are correct, not only survive in the presence of, for example, gamma radiation, but can apparently gain some kind of usable bioenergy from it. And this was done by absorbing the radiation through melanin-rich cells. Now, I wonder if you could try to do something similar to take some inspiration from that and try to modify human somatic cells so that they have similar properties of, of you know, internal chemicals and molecules that are absorbent of radiation and dissipating the radiation instead of allowing it to penetrate the DNA in your cells. Yes, so so we're looking at ways to further protect the body against radiation and make it less susceptible to damage from radiation 
and uh, and then potentially better repair itself. Yeah. Okay. Now, on top of that, one one uh, uh, issue that was brought up in this uh, World Science Festival discussion is uh, cancer treatment and the reduction of cancer risk. Totally. Some of that falls in line with the, the radiation here for sure. But, you know, at first this might seem like more of a terrestrial concern, right? But what if you're talking about a 10-year trip and then you uh, realize you've developed cancer three years in? Five years in. Yeah. So you can't take a risk. Uh, you can't risk an astronaut coming down with cancer, developing cancer uh, during the trip because they might not have time to make it back to Earth for treatment or it might not even be in the cards for a return trip at all. Sure. I mean, if this is a colonization or if it's a trip to Mars, this is going to be a multi-year kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, even if it's one of these uh, these one way trips that, that we've seen a lot of discussion about. The plan is is probably not for you to get to Mars and then die immediately. I mean, that may happen. That's thus are the the, the risks of such a, a venture. But uh, you, it would be a, it would be even more of a tragedy if it were to occur due to uh, to the the effects of cancer. Um, you know, within the first year of landing on, on Mars. Totally. Now, what about the effects of microgravity? This is obviously going to be one of the biggest challenges that biological systems encounter in space. We are adapted to an environment with Earth gravity, with Mm -hmm. 1G. You go to a place without 1G, or at least without consistent 1G, you're going to encounter some biological disturbances. Yeah, this is this is the area where, and I think we've covered some of the science on this show before, like this is an area that there's been a lot of study uh, not necessarily a lot of great answers other than lots of exercise and, uh, and, and certain uh, vitamin supplements. Yeah, get on that treadmill. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and tread, the use of to the treadmills, the use of exercise devices seems to be one of the, the key ways to make up for it because we don't have artificial gravity. Uh, even though we have these, these wonderful sci-fi visions of, of an artificial gravity created via centrifugal force, via like a spinning space uh, station, uh, like a Taurus or like the space station we see in 2001, a space odyssey. Right. We, these ideas are largely unproven. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, uh, I mean, we, we do know you could create a force toward the floor if you did that. Yes. Yeah. We, we know, we know that. Yeah. We know we could create the force, but we don't know exactly what it would be like to try mm-hmm. and then function as an astronaut, uh, in such an environment. For a really long period of time, yeah. especially, yeah. And then think about if you get to maybe so if you're going to another planet, mm-hmm. once you get to the planet, you're not really going to have that option there. At the planet, you're just going to be dealing with whatever the natural gravity of that planet is. Yeah, it, it was uh, brought up in the the talk by uh, Caleb Scharf uh, that we might have to, if we were on one of these uh, spinning artificial environment uh, uh, constructions, we might have to deal with the, of course, the the Coriolis effect. So oh, what would yeah. happen if I threw an apple to you uh, on board one of these uh, space stations? I don't know. I've never tried to throw an apple in a spinning drum. What would happen? Uh, I don't know. But it's one of those (laughs) those new realities you would have to get used to, just the way uh, objects behave in this space, because you would be replicating gravity, but it would be it would be artificial gravity in, in 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 a very real sense. I mean, there are just so many ways that space messes with you in a systemic uh, way. Mm -hmm. In some cases, I think it's not even totally clear when, say, astronauts on the International Space Station exhibit symptoms, what in what ways the symptoms are informed by the different conditions of space. So you've got microgravity, but it's not just the microgravity. You've also got a different microbial environment. Oh, yes. And you've got, you know, you've got a million different things going on at once. Some of it's probably just stress and things like that. So we don't even know at this point for sure exactly what parts of space travel do what to you. In some cases, we have a good idea. In other cases, we're not as sure. Yeah, in the talk, Mason also pointed out that when you when you get into space, thousands of genes become perturbed. So we have a short list of risk genes for space. And an example of this would be stress response genes, DNA damage and repair genes. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, and and a lot of this was to be expected because gene expression changes all the time. It happens. It happens here on Earth every time you eat. Yeah. Uh, it it kind of goes back to our discussion about the the. The, the role that uh, your local environment, your local microbiome would have on the expression of your genes. Totally. And that that gets into another fact of life in space uh, pointed out uh, uh, by Mason in this, and that's that, uh, that microbes become more active in space. So salmonella, for instance, becomes more deadly for mice 
that have been studied in orbital environments. Yeah, I think we mentioned that in the reasons not to take your space helmet off yeah. episode. So, yeah, w- once you get into space, it appears that space conditions, for whatever reason, increase the virulence of pathogens, which is just great. <laughs> Who decided that would happen? Um yeah, it increases the virulence of pathogens and depresses your immune function, right? It leads to these immune problems like uh, we, t- we talked in, in that other episode about all the ways that space messes with your immune system, including creating these sort of almost allergic-like effects. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that is one fruitful place to start looking about modification of humans. If you want to modify astronauts to survive in space, you might need to make changes to how uh, the immune system is expressed and regulated by the genome. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like just across the board, you, in the same way that an astronaut is 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 does not is probably not going to be your average physical specimen. You know, they they need no, to be they somebody, tend to be pretty buff. Yeah, they need to be in shape. They need to they need to be able to survive the rigors of space. So in order to to tweak the genome, you need to essentially tweak for a, just a really healthy person. Mm-hmm. So ignore you know, don't worry about crab claws just yet. <laughs> like focus on creating a really healthy astronaut that's gonna be able to withstand these changes. That's gonna, you know, for instance, uh, not uh suffer as much uh, bone and muscle loss uh, due to the effects of microgravity. You know, it's it's also worth noting in all of this that that uh, some of these negatives that we're talking about in orbit are actually examples of the body adapting in, in real time. Uh, you know, not evolving, but adapting. Uh, so, so all that bone and muscle mass uh, that is lost unless, you know, vigorous exercise is kept up to sort of keep it in check. Mm-hmm. Like that's essentially the body acclimatizing to yeah. this low gravity environment. It's being smart. It's using yeah. its resources wisely. Yeah. Why, saying, I, I don't need to be strong. Yeah. And then there are other changes that are happening as well. Like uh, it was pointed out that you'll end up with calluses on the tops of your feet as well. Huh. Because uh, it's not just the bottoms of your feet that are coming in contact with the, the surfaces in your environment. You're becoming, you're not this just top-down gravity organism anymore. You're, Weird. Yeah. And then uh, there's the example of clothing. So Mason, uh, wor- uh, he talked a bit about uh, in this about his work with the NASA astronaut twins, Mark and Scott Kelly. Mm-hmm. He did a number of, uh, of, of, of experiments where he was essentially, you know, looking at the uh, at the genetic differences between the two after uh, one of them returned from space. And, uh, and he pointed out that, um, that uh, after Scott uh, Kelly returned, like he could not wear clothing for a couple of days because just the, the feeling of clothing uh, held down by gravity on his skin uh, made him experience uh, quote unquote pain. Wow. Yeah. So it's just that you become that unaccustomed to even just minor uh, aspects of uh, of gravity. It's hard to imagine. Yeah. Your shirt hurts. Yeah. And and that's just and that's one of the small things. It's not even getting into uh you know uh, you know potential you know radiation or 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 major uh, uh bone and muscle mass loss. Oh and then of course there's uh there's the fact that your circadian rhythm is screwed up. Yeah. And as you're trying to sleep unless you have your hands strapped down they're going to be floating in your face, you know, phantom hands coming at you. <laughs> And this is something I hadn't thought about uh, that Mason pointed out is that uh, you're, you're sitting there, you're, you're laying there, floating there, however you want to look at it, uh, strapped down, trying to sleep. And you're already uh, like puffed up and snotty just from right. just by, hay fever kind of condition. Yeah, hay fever kind of condition, just by, by virtue of being in space and sharing everybody's microbiome. Uh, but you're also liable to wind up sleeping in a bubble of CO2. Uh, what? Yeah, what he refers to as uh, in your own respiratory excrement, um, just by virtue of breathing into this this uh, this this microgravity environment. Mm, so, like the gases don't disperse as easily, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'd never heard that before. I, I had not either, but it it makes sense. Now, in a rare reversal of everything we've been talking about, of all these uh, dire consequences of venturing into space. Mason points out that our uh, telomeres actually get longer in space. Oh, the telomeres. Now, are these um, these are things having to do supposedly with the natural length of cell division and reproduction in the human body? Yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you get into the like the whole science of, of telomeres and uh, 
we, we won't get into it here. Uh, there's a there's a, there's an article on HowStuffWorks.com that I wrote years ago about it. But the short version is that uh, telomere length is uh, directly related to uh, to lifespan. Okay. So if uh, telomeres are longer, then 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 life is longer. That's mm. kind of the, the the very brief explanation of it. So you could make an argument that. If you were in sp- that, that life in space lasts longer, that you could live longer in space, of course, if you were ignoring many of these other uh, debilitating effects. So why did Roy Beatty come back to Earth? If he wants more <laughs> life, maybe he should have stayed in space. Well, but I mean, that's kind of the thing, right? That the telomeres uh, were artificially shortened on replicants, I guess. True. Yeah. Or maybe it's because he came back. Because this, I don't know if, if there's been much uh, treatment on this, but. The uh, the replicants in Blade Runner, were they made for use in off-world scenarios, for use in space? Yeah, I think so. Huh. You know, it seems like you could probably create a replicant then that would live longer in space. And if it returned to a higher gravity world, it would have a genetic effect on it that would uh, kill it. I mean, this is almost a perfect example of one of the dangers of, say, you want to create CRISPR-modified astronauts that Mm -hmm. thrive in space. What if their mission changed and they wanted to come back to Earth? A thing optimized for space would no longer be optimized for Earth. And there are many cases where if you want a genetic advantage in one environment, it's not just like a it's it's not just like an a win with no drawback, you know, uh-huh. if you were to come back to earth, it would actually hurt you. There's a, there's a win loss. There's a trade off. Yeah. I guess part of it comes down to like how, how far into the future are you gazing? You know, are you creating a well, creating and maybe a too heavy a term, but are you augmenting, augmenting people to, to remain within this next phase? Are you essentially creating an, an interplanetary, uh, humanoid species, uh, or subspecies? Are you are you creating subspecies then that are acclimatized to various off-world environments, or are you are you saying, all right, these people are going to come back too, and then and then like how does that affect their rights as a citizen, uh, as how, a member of the human species? How much would you have to modify astronauts before they began to lose their sense of kinship with Earth-dwelling humans, and Earth-dwelling humans lost their sense of kinship for the astronauts? I mean, we are incredibly genetically similar to chimpanzees and sometimes show a remarkable callousness, uh, despite how similar we are. How much would you have, how many genes would you have to change before we no longer recognize the astronaut as the same animal as us? Well, and think of just spatial distance here on Earth. And granted, this is kind of a clunky uh, analogy, but uh, think of the callousness that uh, one group of people can show for another yeah. on the other side of the Earth. And then imagine us sending people even greater distances, like distances between people that have not been possible until uh, until the advent of interplanetary travel. Yeah. In other words, the spatial distance between people will be greater than it has ever been in human history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, what yeah. will be the ramifications of that? Yeah, that's a tough thing to consider. Um, and then when you start factoring in the the increased time it takes to transmit information as interconnected as we are uh, on on Earth now, like that is not necessarily going to carry over to an interplanetary scenario. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking kind of you know, far future here, but can you imagine, you know, how out of the loop you feel when you come in 14 minutes after the beginning of a public discussion on Twitter about yeah. some public <laughs> event that just happened? Now, people on Mars are going to be like that constantly. Well, Mars will have to have its own Twitter, I guess, is the thing. Yeah. We'll have Martian Twitter and Earth Twitter. Uh, it's the only way to do it. <laughs> I would like would to you sign need up a, for, for Mars Twitter now. I think it'd be great. It would, would just be one person. Would you need a genetic modification in order to be able to keep up with the jokes on Mars Twitter? Huh. Yeah, I mean. Need a red red humor gene. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, you, you do get into so many different when you when you start thinking in you know, far future, uh, there's so many uh, cultural changes that can occur, so many changes in value uh, on top of uh, various uh, microbial changes that have taken place. Now, a lot of the changes we've talked about so far, uh, the potential genetic changes have been to survive in a space environment, you know, just to get along with all of the natural hardships you'd face. 
But there are also things that you could imagine changing about people just to make them like more efficient in space. I mean, one of the things I can imagine would be like better eyesight for low light conditions. Yes. If you wanted to have that in space to conserve power or all kinds of power conserving things like, uh, could you make people that had slower metabolisms in space so they needed to consume fewer resources? Could you make people whose, I don't know, genetic engineering so their kidneys are more efficient so they don't, don't need to drink as much water to stay healthy or something? Yeah. And I wonder, uh, I mean, I can't help but draw in, I guess, kind of kind of clunky comparisons to other natural world organisms and say, well, if we had if we had this feature, would that make us a little, uh, you know, a little better in a microgravity environment? For instance, uh, I'm thinking like a cat's whiskers, Mm -hmm. like if humans had cat whiskers, would they be better at floating around through various tubes and whatnot? Because they'd have a a very uh, ready read on the space versus the size of their body. Now, maybe humans, instead of crab claws, need spider spinnerets in space so that they can, like, shoot webs out Mm -hmm. and pull themselves from place to place in a microgravity environment. Huh. I wonder how would we spin? I guess maybe we would, like, milk it from our nipples. That would be because because I don't know how a like a a Spider-Man web shooter uh, scenario would work. But I'm thinking back on the. The goat we discussed that had been uh, genetically augmented to uh, produce uh, spider silk from its uh, its yeah, udders. The spider goat, yeah. Yeah, so if we could create our own spider nipple scenario, I can imagine like a shirtless astronaut. He's floating around in the cabin, and he needs to move across the room. So he reaches down to his nipple, pulls out some uh, some silk, and like throws a drag line across the, the room and then navigates on that. I commend you, Robert, but I think we've reached the end of this conversation. <laughs> Probably so. Uh, anytime the spider goat is invoked, you've, you've kind of reached the limits of human understanding, I guess. Well, hey, you out there, what do you think would be one of the most useful or interesting genetic modifications for future astronauts and space colonists? Or do you think that we shouldn't dabble in trying to modify, uh, trying to modify humans except for maybe life threatening or, or survival needs? And to what extent should we focus on changing individuals? And to what extent should we focus on changing the species? Like, are you just changing an individual astronaut or a group of astronauts for a journey, for a mission? Or are you altering the human species entirely and creating a a subspecies that's going to thrive in a particular environment? Yeah, I don't know. It's a really interesting question. So, yeah, you out there, let us know what you think. Yeah. Hit us with those uh, other science fiction uh, examples. I'm sure there are tons of them. Uh, as always, you can find us all the normal places. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, all those websites. We also have the mothership, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes uh, dating back to the very beginning. You'll find videos, uh, blog posts, etc. And to email us directly, as always, you can hit us up at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.